Good morning. Uh, I can't say, uh, I can't even put words to how blessed I feel and how blessed I am to, to be here and um, to be part of this absolutely amazing church. Um, and there's so many people that I just would love to thank, uh, but we'd be here till 4 o'clock if I covered everybody. Um, so I just want to mention a few. I want to start by thanking the Academy. Um, <laughs> that'll be maybe another career, I don't know. No. I have to thank uh, my colleagues and my mentors, um, in particular Bob Thornton, Pastor Bob Thornton, Pastor Michael Coffey, who, uh, who just has always walked with me, always had my back, and always has just been such a great uh, source of inspiration. And, and of course, uh, Pastor Marty, um, what, what can I say? Liz, thank you so much for your husband. He has uh, inspired me. He has helped me. We, it all began at, at breakfast at IHOP. Um, there must have been something in the eggs that day or something. I came out transformed uh, because of God working through this man. So I praise and thank you. And, and of course, I absolutely have to just say thank you to my family, Nick, Sophie, Hannah, Rebecca, my kids who kind of were with me through all of this. And, and most of all, my wife, Amy, who um, bore the, the burden of this. Uh, it was easy for me. It was a, her. It was a, a much more challenging thing. So thank you. And uh, let me just pray. God in heaven, um, truly, truly, the heavens declare your glory and the skies proclaim the work of your hands. And we need only look outside today and know, God, how real and how true you are. Thank you, God, that in addition to your, your revelation through all you've created, you've given us revelation through your word, Lord. I pray this morning, I pray this morning that your spirit would lead us in the word, in the word from the pen of Paul, Lord, in 1 Corinthians, that... Um, you might show us, Lord, um, the truth as you desire us to know it, the real truth. So I pray more, your, your spirit be with us this morning, Lord, and I just pray your anointing upon this time in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so my career in litigation, it didn't really get off to that smooth of a start. I was barely a year out of law school, and uh, I was assigned to my first trial. Uh, and being the most junior associate by far, in other words, of the cannon fodder, um, I faced some real uh, challenges. We were defending a local TV station, and it was a libel lawsuit. Okay? And the, the story was, that they had ran was called The Dirty Duck, and I'm not going to share any details about that because we were in the house of God. But you can imagine, just from the name, what this case was about. And um, prior to the trial, there was a hearing, pretrial hearing. You lawyers would know what that is, um, in which we were... Uh, having a hearing on various motions, including a motion to dismiss that we had filed on, on behalf of one of the defendants. Uh, and while we were going through the uh, closing argument, or the arguments on that motion, opposing counsel stood up and they cited a case that completely gutted our case. The judge heard the arguments and then said, I'm going to take a 20-minute recess and I'll come back and give you my rulings. And immediately, the senior partner on that team turned to me and says, go to the court, house, court library, find us a case that's going to save our motion, okay? So I think I could actually do that. I just got up and I ran down to the court library and I went through all the, all the law books and, and, and all the cases that were citing this particular case and I wasn't finding anything until suddenly, uh, it, boom, I saw, I found one. There it is, a case that seemed to have similar facts to ours and yet um, the judge had ruled differently. Oh, I was so excited. I printed it off. I ran up there. I, I ran through the, you know, the courthouse doors. The, I mean, the 
chamber doors, and the judge was just about to like lay down the hammer on the motion that we had just filed. And I, I opened it to the right page. I gave it to the partner. He looked at it. He smiled. He says, Your Honor, we have some authority that we think the other side has not told you about. And he handed it to the judge. And here I am thinking, here goes my career. It's a drop the mic kind of moment, you know? And um, the judge looks at it, and he's kind of nodding. And he's, then suddenly he flips back um, a few pages because, um, well, kind of one detail I left out was when I found that case, I didn't read the whole case. Um, so he flipped back through it, and he's going through the pages, and suddenly gets this perplexed look on his face. And I'm thinking, what on earth? Um, what's going on here? And, and, and then he stops, and he looks at our, the, uh, the partner that was on our case and said, you're correct, counsel. This case is exactly on point. But are you aware that you're citing from the dissenting opinion? That was not a shining moment in my legal career. Uh, and I never, ever made that mistake again, I trust you. Um, but I share that for a reason. You see, when I went looking for that case, I went looking not necessarily for actual truth, but rather for truth that matched my need. The truth, uh, there was truth in the opinion, that is to say, I mean, it had a conclusion that was authoritative and relevant, it just wasn't the conclusion I wanted. The conclusion I wanted uh, happened to be in the wrong part of the opinion. Um, and I was neither the first, nor am I afraid of, I won't be the last, to seek my truth instead of the truth. Even in this moment, maybe particularly in this moment, we hear all kinds of conflicting narratives purporting to be the truth, do we not? And we're left kind of wondering, what do we, what do, we do? Which do we believe? Do we believe CNN? Do we believe Fox? Do we believe MSNBC? Do we believe what we read on Twitter or Instagram? Frankly, we don't know if COVID is coming or going. It depends who you ask. We don't know. Is the economy firing up or is it bogging down? It depends who you ask. Are we in a verge of a civil war or some bright new beginning? It depends who you ask. Who won the election? It depends who you ask, right? <laughs> These are just matters pertaining to politics, society, and culture, things of this world. But what about matters of our ontological existence, our very being? Things that Marty has talked to, taught to us so time and again. Why is there something instead of nothing? Who or what is God? Is there really no absolute truth? Isn't that an absolute truth in and of itself, that statement? I could go on, but you get the point. In a place and a time where so many versions of truth are out there, which can we trust? As parents, what do we tell our kids? As pastors, what do we tell our flock? In the midst of all this confusion, it's easy to get fearful and despondent. Maybe you're there today. You need not be. Because there is an answer to the questions. God's answered them throughout the Bible, but he's answered them today, we're going to look at, uh, through the Apostle Paul. And we're going to look at uh, what he said today in 1 Corinthians. If you want to turn there, we're going to look at uh, 1 Corinthians 17 through 25. Um, and we'll also have the text on the screen. But as we look at this pericope, um, we're going to see that the core truth that was given to us by God, the absolute truth, the gospel truth, gives believers all the solid ground we need in turbulent times like this. However, we're also going to see that the truth is nonsensical to the lost, those who are blinded by unbelief. And because of that, we as a church have work to do. So before we delve into the text, uh, I wanna, we need to consider the context, right? Uh, Paul was writing this letter to the church in Corinth, which is a port city located on the isthmus of, uh, that connected the Peloponnesian Peninsula to the rest of Greece. So it was a northwest trade route. 
because it was on that trade route, uh, there was a lot, it was a port city and a lot of, of wealth that went through there. It, they amassed a lot of wealth in the city. Um, and it also then became a significant hub of, of Greek religious and philosophical and, and cultural thought, all of which was grounded in, in worldly perspective. Paul wrote the letter during his time in Ephesus in AD 55, after learning that the church had become plagued by conflict and division within the body. Um, it, it grew out of their lack of spiritual growth. They were still drinking milk, not eating meat, and their focus on worldly matters. But in particular, they were focusing on, and so rather than focusing on the gospel, they were focusing on those talking about preaching the gospel. So note what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 11 through 14. For I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. See, Paul here is referring to some silos that had developed in the church because people were, were following different leaders, perhaps based on their different perspectives or approaches uh, to the work of the church. Paul, who, who had a particular concern for, for gen, the Gentiles, and of course the Jews as well, but, but be, be, be his concern for the Gentiles, he, he put a lot of, of emphasis on salvation, of course, apart from works, including circumcision. Apollos, meanwhile, was a Jewish Christian from Alexandria, which was home to a significant population of Jewish intellectuals that were known for merging Greek philosophy with Jewish thinking. So it could have been that Apollos was sowing the same Greco-Roman wisdom and philosophy into some of his teachings. In fact, maybe that's the wisdom we're going to talk about later. Cephas, or the Apostle Peter, meanwhile, adhered more closely to Jewish tradition in his approach. Though clearly not a Judaizer, he, he had a tendency to distance himself from the Gentiles. Because we know this from Galatians 1, 11 through 14, where Paul recounts uh, re challenging Peter for separating himself from eating with the Gentiles. But the point is this. In all cases, people were more enthralled by the messenger than the message. Do we see this today? Possibly so. See, Paul is calling on the Corinthians and us to set, set such things aside and focus on what is truly important, which is the gospel itself. He underscores this point in verse 17, where he reminds the church of his calling. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. In other words, Paul is called to preach the gospel of Christ, not build a following for himself. He adds he is called to preach, quote, not in cleverness of speech. In Greek, that's uksophia logu. Uh, logu is literally translated wisdom of word. And what Paul is saying is that it's not the, the mastery of his delivery or the eloquence of his words that matter. Rather, it's the content of his message, the content of God's message. The wisdom Paul here refers to here is the wisdom of the world um, as opposed to that of God. In Paul's day, it would have been the intellectual debates of the Greek philosophers and the sophists and so forth. But what does that look like today? What is worldly wisdom today? Eh, it seems like it could be many things. Um, but I think it can be summed up as this. It's what I want it to be. Now, notice what Paul is saying here. Namely, that he does not preach in cleverness of speech, speech so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. In Greek, that word made void, uh, that phrase is me uh, kenothe. It literally means to be emptied, 
to be destroyed, rendered void, or to be of no effect. The implication then is that when we allow worldly wisdom and clever speech to intermingle with or supplant the truth of the gospel, the work of Christ on the cross is made void, rendered ineffectual to the unbeliever. It's a very serious and sobering reminder, especially for me today, for all pastors, but also for each of you who are charged with sharing the word. It's a very sobering reminder that we are called to preach the truth in truth and nothing more. But we must preach it. We can't hide it. In the verses that follow, Paul expands on why it's so vital that we preach the gospel and not be sidetracked by the wisdom of the word. He writes in verse 118, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The power of God. The first question one might ask is, what is the word of the cross? What does Paul mean? Well, it's just that. It's the message of the crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ and the role these play in the salvation of all who believe. To those perishing, to unbelievers, Paul says this message is foolishness. The Greek word is maria or moros. Does that sound familiar? That's where we get the word moron. Have you ever been made to feel like a moron because of your faith in our world today? Why is this message of the cross foolishness to the unbeliever? Uh, I like what commenter uh, Verlin Verbrugge puts it. He puts it this way in describing their thinking. Who in their right mind would say that the way to get peace with God is to build a relationship with someone who suffered the type of death reserved only for the worst of criminals of the criminals of the Roman Empire? Let's face it, the world scoffs at those who believe that the God of the universe would send his only son to a tiny planet in a solar system on the outpost of a minor galaxy to die on a cross. The world scoffs at the notion that a member of the Godhead would choose to empty himself of his power so that his creation could flog him and crucify him. That God would use this way to save us and reconcile us, reconcile us to him. Well, that's simply crazy talk to the world. But you and I know better. The Bible is full of timeless truth. And here's one more example. The foolishness of the message of Christ crucified to unbelievers in Paul's time is the same foolishness that exists today. It's the same. Nothing's changed. The question for you and me is, are we willing to look foolish to them for the sake of their souls? If you believe in Jesus, are you willing to look foolish to the world? Or do we hide the wisdom of the cross to preserve our image and our intellectual reputation? We're all called to preach the gospel. It's not just pastors. And we're called to do so boldly and without reservation. Consider what Paul writes in Romans chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, but in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. See, Paul also captures this idea of the power of God here in, in 1 Corinthians uh, 18. Noting the message of the cross is the power of God for those being saved. But how is the wisdom of the cross power? Indeed, the message of Jesus sent, Jesus sent through, through the cross perhaps to you seems counterintuitive to power at least by this world standards, uh, he renounced his claim to himself and his position. 
He deferred in absolute obedience to the will of the Father, even to the point, as Luke tells us, of sweating blood in anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane. And his obedience led to humiliation and death. How is that power? Well, this is the message of the cross. But it's not just this. See, the message of the cross leads to and includes the message of the empty tomb. If Jesus didn't die on the cross, we, he would not have overcome death through resurrection. And if that did not happen, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Our preaching is not useless, brothers and sisters, and your faith is the most valuable thing you have because the resurrection is true. John 14, 6 is become my life verse, and it says Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Yet the way was through the cross. The way is through the cross. The sacrifice of our suffering Savior led not to destruction, but to resurrection, not to a temporal lowly estate, but to restoration of his eternal state on the throne of heaven. That is power, true power, in the same way, if we place our trust in Jesus, renouncing our claims to ourselves and following him in obedience, even if it means being called foolish, even if it includes humiliation, even if it leads to death, for if we do these things, we'll experience the power of God, the power that saves us for eternity. That power does not exist in the halls of Congress. That power does not exist in the chambers of the Supreme Court. That power does not exist in the vaults of Wall Street. That power exists in the heart of the believer, and it's the only power you need. We need to hold on to this truth, especially in these times. But Paul's message here deals with more than just worldly wisdom of philosophers, uh, like we might hear today from atheists and agnostics. His audience also included Jews. Jews who rejected the message of the cross for different reasons, as we will see. So in verse 119, Paul quotes prophecy that would have been all too familiar for them, to them. Uh, 119 says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. It's a reference to, uh, from Isaiah 29, God's warning to Ariel. Ariel, literally meaning Lion of God, refers to Jerusalem whose leaders, King Hezekiah in particular, were rely, had relied on human counsel and the wisdom uh, of, of other men rather than faith in God when facing the Assyrian invasion. Instead, instead of calling on God, they sought an alliance with Egypt to protect them. And in response to their reliance on their own wisdom, God warns through the prophet Isaiah, because this people draw near to me with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts from me <coughs> and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrous, wondrously marvelous. And the wisdom of their wise men will perish and the discernment of their discerning men will be concealed. You see, the Israelites had lost sight of all that God had done to protect them and turned to their own logic and perceived sense of intellect. And in rejecting Christ, the Jews in Paul's day and unbelievers today do the same thing. As Paul shows us here, it's always been God's plan to humble the wise and the proud, to lift up the meek and the humble, those who earnestly seek his help rather than leaning on their own wisdom. In light of this truth, in verse 20, he asked these three rhetorical questions. 
related to earthly wisdom. He asks, where is the wise person? Who's the wise person? Again, that would be the one with sophos, the worldly wisdom gained through learning, education, the things we do on earth. He says, where is the scribe? That would be the grammatis, or experts in matters of divine revelation. There he's referring to uh, the Jewish teachers of the law. Where is the debater of this age? Again, Greek philosophers who engage in endless debates to demonstrate their intellect. Where are these people? Paul's asking. The implication of the question is that they are fleeting. For none of these offer true, lasting wisdom. None of their wisdom can compete with the wisdom and the message of the cross. Why? Well, Paul answers this in a fourth rhetorical question. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So again, we see moros, again, where we get the word moron. Paul asks, God, has God not made moronic the wisdom of this world? Indeed. Jesus himself answered this question in Luke, Luke chapter 10, speaking of the, the 70 that he sent out, and they returned with, with, with great reports of, of, of reaping the harvest. Jesus prays out, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, and you have revealed them to, to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing to you in your sight. God's plan is again repeated in 1 Corinthians 1.21. For indeed, by the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its wisdom. God preferred through the foolishness of preaching to save those believing. So it's always been God's plan to make the wisdom of the world a stumbling block to truth. We see this theme more fully developed in Romans 1.18 through 23 which speaks of the wrath of God revealed against those who suppress truth and unrighteousness, even though, though the truth of God has been made evident to them through all he created, as we all know so well if we just go outside today. There Paul writes, For even they know God, they did, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fool fools and exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of a corruptible man, of birds, of four-footed animals, of crawling creatures, of donkeys, of elephants. Uh, okay. Actually, that's not there. <laughs> but you see the point. It's out of the foolish of this world that the world calls truth foolish. And it's out of the blindness of this world that the world ridicules faith as blind. Paul next gives these three practical examples of how people approach the gospel. Uh, I, I like what Warren, as Warren Wearsby puts it, three attitudes towards the cross. He writes, For indeed, in uh, 1 Corinthians 1.22, For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, Jews at that time stumbled over the cross, just as many do today. In their mind, the power of God would have been better revealed through miraculous signs and wonders, similar to the many examples they were familiar with in Scripture, from Exodus to Elijah. How was it that the Messiah would bring about salvation in any other way but through power and glory and victory? The cross for them was the opposite. It represented weakness. It represented defeat and death. The problem, of course, was that they misinterpreted their very own scriptures, which are replete with prophecies, 
regarding the manner in which the ultimate victory over sin and reconciliation with God would come about. Sadly, they're not the last to stumble over their perception of the cross as a sign of weakness. Many struggle with that motion today. The idea that God would condescend himself as Jesus did for our sake. Maybe it's because if Jesus is to be our example, if he, if he sets the road where, where, where we were supposed to take, well, that's not really a road we want to take. We want a God who makes us victorious in this world, not the other side of it. If you find yourself stumbling over the cross in this way because it represents weakness, stop for a minute and reflect <coughs> excuse me, on the message that Jesus really sent through it, the true message, which is this. It's not about the weakness of God. It's about the depth of his love for you. It's not about the weakness of God. It's about the his depth of his love for every one of you. God of the universe died for you. Paul speaks of a second view of the cross. It's that of the Gentiles. And here again, he calls fool, it, you know, their, their view is foolish, is that it's foolishness. In other words, they mock the message of the cross. Uh, we've already covered this group in, in detail already. They're, they're prideful. They're the arrogant. They're the ones who will mock you for your faith. In fact, I've been told by unbelievers that faith is a crutch. Have you heard that one before? I'm sure you have. My response is usually the same. You're right. It is a crutch. The difference between you and me is that you don't realize both your legs are broken. Remember, God has told us that it was in his wisdom that he allows the wisdom of the world to derail the, the prideful unbeliever. And if you have faith, your wisdom is greater and your hope is not fleeting. I've known incredibly gifted, intelligent people who continually, time again, reject the truth of God, only to come to a point of facing senility in their waning years. Those stories leave me so sad. For their trust is in a wisdom that will only fade away, just like the song. It's just fading away. They need a better wisdom. We need a better wisdom. We need the true wisdom that delivers us from perishing. Our final group now consists of those called... For them, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. They, and hopefully you, cling to a truth that has no agenda other than God's covenantal promise. It is a truth we can lean on in these turbulent times. It truly is. See, when deception seems endless and the wisdom of, of the world is devoid of cohesion and stability, we have this greater truth the truth. We should praise and thank God for that. Our last verse today shows us why we can lean on this truth, why we can lean on the wisdom of the cross. In 1 Corinthians 1.25 says, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The message of cross to the unbeliever describes God in his most foolish and weakest state. Even if we grant that view, we know from Paul's letter that the greatest wisdom of the world still can't even approach it. Doesn't come near. Take heart and believe the message of the cross. It's the message God gave you so that he might deliver you. So remember that trial motion I told you about earlier? You're not going to be surprised that uh, we lost. The judge ruled against us because he knew that the controlling legal authority he knew what the controlling legal authority was in the case, and he knew it wasn't found in a dissenting opinion. There's a far greater judge sitting on the throne of the universe. He, too, has issued an opinion or two. 
His ruling is simply this. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is the wisdom of the cross. That is what we lay hold to. That is our, all of our hope, no matter what's going on in the world around us. There are plenty of dissenting opinions, of course, but none hold any weight. None are controlling. None will withstand the test of time. And my question for you is this. Have you accepted the majority opinion? Have you accepted the ruling of the judge of the universe? Or are you clinging to empty philosophies built on specious and fleeting ideas of truth? Are you grasping the wisdom of the cross that Jesus Christ died and rose again to make a way for you and for me in eternity? Let that sink in as you look around in the world today? Or are you grasping for error? At error. Looking for any other way than that which looks foolish to you. There's no other way. So let today be that day. I pray let today be the day that you let go of your pride and hold on, grab hold of the cross if you have not already. And if you have, for those who know the wisdom of the cross, it's time to make that message known. Now more than ever. If you get nothing else out of what I've said here today, please get this. Do not fear being called foolish for sharing your faith. Rather, expect it. Do not hide the truth for the sake of avoiding ridicule. For the very ridicule that you receive is evidence that you preach the all-powerful wisdom of God. Perhaps more than ever, I said, a great many need that wisdom and the hope that comes with it. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. And the world is indeed a very dark place at the moment. Testify to the truth. Let your life reflect the message of the cross. Let the world laugh at you. Let the world mock you. Let the world ostracize you. So be it. For every slight you endure is evidence that you not only comprehend, but you live out the wisdom of the cross. May we all live out the wisdom of the cross. Let me pray for us. God in heaven, you've shown us the way. You've shown us the wisdom of the cross. You've shown us what is right, what is true. You've shown us what is lovely. You've shown us exactly where we need to be focusing right now. Not on the world around us, not on the wisdom around us, God, but your wisdom. God, I pray that we would go forth from this house of worship today, Lord, preaching, singing, declaring that truth in the power of your name. And Lord, for those here who uh, are struggling to understand or comprehend the truth of the cross, God, I pray that uh, their hearts would be open to you, that they would know you in a new, profoundly different and fundamental way, and that nothing in this world would make sense to them except the cross. Pray these things, Lord Jesus, in your precious name. Amen.